This is a sermon from Cornerstone Church in Kingston. We're delighted to make these resources available for you and hope that you enjoy the ministry of God's Word today. There are lots of other resources on our website which we are pleased to make available and you can browse our website and download sermons and podcasts, read blogs and articles. And if you've been listening for a while and you would like to get to know the church or for us to get to know you a bit, there is an e-contact card, a welcome card that you can fill in on our website and we'd love to hear from you. So John 18 beginning at verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Well, good evening. Uh, Good evening to you all and welcome from me. My name's Chris Tilly. I'm one of the uh, elders here, as Phil said. Um, Let's pray before we we start. Father, as as we've just been praying on our tables, help us now to um, open ourselves up to your word of truth. Uh, We know your word is true, and we know your word is good. Um, So please help us to to listen and accept it now. Amen. Well, what is truth? It's a great little line, isn't it, by Pilate. What is truth, Pilate retorts. It's tempting uh, to think that truth is one of those elusive things for for humans, Uh, a bit like trying to grasp hold of the wind. Although if you were in a recent Rooted talk, one of our youth did try and actually grab grab hold of the wind. He tried to suck it in, which was a really clever way of doing it, I thought. Anyway, by the by. But who knows the truth about pretty much anything? Who can say definitively what the truth is about many, many things? It's often said that we live in a a post-truth age, an age in which there's so much disinformation, and it's incredibly hard to trust basically any, any sources whatsoever. 
Uh, my my favourite radio presenter is is Lisa Tarbuck. Um, every Saturday, it's well known in our house that I have a date with her between six and eight pm while I'm cooking dinner, and she often randomly just shouts out, "Tell us the truth," which is actually a really good thing to shout out. And um, deeper, I think, than she even realises. Tell us the truth. It's a deep longing of humans to know what on earth is the truth. So, for, for example, is truth uh, a subjective thing? Is it merely subjective? Subjective means is it based on feelings, tastes, or opinions? Because we're told many things that, that claim to be the truth, aren't we? Many things that claim to be the truth. Uh, take, um, oh gosh, controversial, why have I put this down? Take evolution. Frankly, we shouldn't care one way or the other um, if it's true or not. It doesn't actually matter in the end. I know all, yeah, you can argue with me about it afterwards. I don't care. I'll find out one day when I get to heaven, or maybe I won't. And then I still won't care because I'll be in heaven. Um, but what we should care about, what we should care about, is when people purport it to be absolutely true. It's not. It's unproven theory. It's based on opinion. It's not, it's not uh, factual because it's untested. It's unproven. That's subjective. That is subjective. Or is truth simply a matter of perspective? You know, uh, you, I believe one thing, you believe another. You have your truth, I have uh, my, my truth, um, um, live and let live. Is, th- is that how truth works? Well, as you've probably already figured out, The answer to all of the above is no. The truth is not subjective. There's nothing subjective about truth. It doesn't actually matter what we feel is true. It doesn't matter what we think is true. It doesn't matter what we want to be true. The truth is the truth, whether we know it, like it, or want it. It it just doesn't change. It is true. The truth isn't about perspective either. It is by definition, exclusive, meaning there can only be one truth. If something is true, everything else is false. That's that's the very definition. There's no room for other versions. They are not the truth. They are at best distortions, at worst outright lies. The truth is a singular thing. It's a singularity. You cannot have two people with contradictory ideas both claiming to be true. That is not how truth works. Either one is false and the other true, or as is more often the case, they're both false. They can never both be true. And this is the predicament that poor old Pilate finds himself in today. He is being asked to make a decision about someone's life based on two different versions of the truth. Um, there, was a, there was a film in uh, 2021. Uh, I doubt many of you have, have seen it. It's a Matt Damon movie called The Last Jewel. It's set in medieval France. And it's a unique film in, in this, in that it tells the story three times over. You actually watch the film three times. You watch it, firstly, from the point of view of... Um, I can't remember his name. That's a French name. Uh, it's gone from my head. It's his, it's his version of events of what happened to him and his wife. Then you watch the whole film again, which is from another man's perspective of, well, there was a consensual affair and the ladies all love me, and this is my version of the truth. In both versions, the men are both fantastic. (laughs) 
And you actually, you actually quite like the first guy. You think, wow, fantastic husband, uh, loyal soldier, um, you know, always speaks well in public. But then you see him in the second version of the truth. You think, gosh, this guy's a bit of a shocker, actually. Then you watch it again. And the final telling of the film is just the truth. And it's told from his wife's perspective. They're both horrors. You see what actually happened. You see the truth at the end. And that's, that's kind of what we're going to do tonight. There's, that's largely what you have going on here. You have the Jewish leader's version of the truth. You have Pilate's version of the truth. Then you just have the truth at the end. So I'm going to do something that's uh, maybe, maybe a, little bit, a, little bit, um, a little bit dodgy, but let, go with me. I'm not a heretic, so don't charge me on stage. But I want us to, I want us to get into the mindset of these Jewish leaders I want for a moment all of us in the room to imagine that we are one of the Jewish leaders at this particular time in history. So uh, the truth according to the Jewish leaders, if you could put that up, Alex. Israel, as a nation, does not really exist. Okay? We're there. We're back 2,000 years. Those glory days are a thousand odd years in the past under King David and Solomon. Since then, you've had the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now the Romans have invaded uh, and, and ruled over Israel. Currently, Israel only exists as a Roman province, which they call Palestine, rubbing further salt into very deep old wounds. It's the province of Palestine, not even of Judea or Israel. And Roman rule is pretty total. Their military might's completely unparalleled. Their systems of government reach deep into many aspects of life. Taxes are levied, slaves are taken, tariffs are applied. That's the sort of world you're living in. And in return for this domination, you get relative stability and the protection of the legions, although this feels a lot like extortion most of the time. For a nation such as Israel, this is not good enough. It's not good enough. You are God's chosen people. That's what you hold in your heart. You have a history of heroic military leaders, peerless warriors, great kings. If anything, the boot should be on the other foot. The Romans should be under you. You should be ruling over them. You've got scriptures such as Genesis 49, Numbers 24, Psalm 2, where God promises the nations of the world, as your inheritance. Yeah? You should be the Roman Empire. It should be the Israeli Empire, the Israelite Empire. That's what should be going on in your mind. And not only that, but the scriptures also talk of a Messiah, a king, a promised one, who will rise like a star from among the Jewish people. One who will rule with an iron scepter, and will dash his enemies to pieces like pottery and establish justice over all the earth. He will usher in this new golden age for Israel, for the Jewish people. It's heady stuff, isn't it? It's very, very heady stuff. And in the meantime, the job of the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, is to watch over Israel, is to guard it, is to uphold the law as passed down by Moses until the Messiah comes. And it's into this context steps Jesus. 
and to the minds of the Jewish leaders, he is not the Messiah they were hoping for. I'm not sure specifically what they were expecting. Perhaps that he would rise from among themselves, from the ruling elite. Uh, Ironically, if they'd checked, they would have known that Jesus actually descended from the line of David, which is about as noble as the stock can possibly get. But in chapter 6, you have people saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose parents we know? So from their perspective, this Jesus who rises up, who becomes a personality, is just a normal person. He's nobody special. He's the son of a carpenter. He's conceived outside of marriage, didn't you know? Actually, it's scandalous. He's from Nazareth in Galilee. It's a nowhere. Backwater is horrible. It's like being from Birmingham. I'm from Birmingham. He has no political clout. He has no military leadership or experience or credentials. He has no connections. He's not well connected. He doesn't know the people in power. Frankly, no one knows who he is. But he is making big claims about himself. And he's doing some pretty amazing stuff. And they can't just ignore him. He won't go away. He's like a thorn in their side. So they watch him closely. And as they watch him, they start to build a case against him. And I wonder, would we not have done the same thing? Would we not have done the same thing? It really struck me as I was going through this. Imagine someone started walking around Kingston saying the things that Jesus said. We would think this bloke is mental. We need to lock him up. He's completely lost his mind. So they build a case against him. And the case that they build consists largely of of four things. Uh, But one of them major, one of them major. So something that comes up again and again and again as Jesus goes about his ministry and starts to confirm all of their fears about him is that he consistently does it in ways that break the law. He's a Sabbath breaker. Time and time and time again, Jesus keeps doing things on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter what these things are at all. The fact that he's doing it on the Sabbath rules them out. He could do anything he likes, but it's on the Sabbath, so it doesn't matter. It's null and void. The fourth commandment says to remember and keep the Sabbath holy. And Jesus is not doing that in their view. What sort of a Messiah can he possibly be if he breaks God's law so blatantly? So in chapter 5, as Jesus heals a lame man, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it it up and walk? And then you skip on. And so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. They don't care that a man who was lame his entire life is now walking. He did it on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter what he did. He's a lawbreaker. And then again, chapter 9 of John, you have a blind man this time. He's been blind his whole life. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. They do not care that a man has just been healed who is blind. He's able to do miraculous things, but so what? 
In order to do them, he breaks God's law, therefore he cannot be from God. That's part of the argument. So, next question, where does he get this power from then? If he's able to do these things, where does this amazing power come from? Aha! There's only one other place, he must be demon-possessed. He must be demon-possessed. And you get it all the way throughout John. Chapter 7, you were demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Chapter 8, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And chapter 10, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? In the other Gospels, they, say, they go as far as saying that his power is from Beelzebub. That's another um, word that they used for Satan himself. That is how he's able to have this power. That is how he's able to do these things. It's, it's not from God. He's a lawbreaker. It's demonic power. That's how this thing's working. And he uses it to deceive the people. They see these signs and these untaught, uneducated people who do not know the law... They just follow him like sheep to the slaughter. In chapter 7, you have the Pharisees saying to the guards, you mean he has deceived you also? They just sent the guards to arrest him in the temple courts. And they come back saying, no one's ever taught this way. Has he deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, because we know the law. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Jesus, with his demon power, has cursed them. He's put a spell on them. And they're just playing along to his, his tune. So Jesus is a lawbreaker, potentially demonic, and has put a curse on the people and so can deceive them. Can nobody see what is going on here? Can nobody see that? We've got to stop this man. He needs to be stopped. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. Because he's just played right into our hands. He's given us the ultimate reason to stop him. He's guilty of blasphemy. In chapter 10 of John, Jesus says these words. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There, we have him. We've got him. Anyone who claims to be God deserves to be put to death. A mere man, the son of a carpenter, this nobody claims to be God. It is our duty to stop him before he goes any further, before he deceives any more. If they do not then not only will his blasphemy go unpunished, but they say in chapter 11 that worse may come. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The Romans will take everything over. It will all be gone. This is their fear. That's their real fear. Many people have fallen for this Jesus, and if they're not careful the Pharisees could have a full-scale uprising on their hands. And if that happens, the Romans will get involved, and that will be bad for us all, mainly for the leaders. Mainly they're worried about saving their own skins. However, there is another issue. 
because of the large following that Jesus has attracted already, they can't simply drag him outside the city and stone him to death for blasphemy because there would be a riot from his followers. So they're a bit stuck. What is to be done? How are we to get ourselves out of this predicament? How do we solve this riddle? Well, that brings us back to today's passage, this scene with Pilate. They cannot kill him for fear of the people. However, here's the clever part. If we can get the Romans to kill him, then the people would not dare rise up against the Romans. So we just have to do some legal chicanery to get around this. Um, sling him through a quick court, take him to Pilate, and then they can do it. And that lands us squarely back on verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, all of the above, Pilate. That's our version of the truth. That's all you need. He is a criminal. And so we have handed him over to you. That's all you need to know. Don't worry about the details. Just know that he's a criminal. (laughs) And just... Do your thing. For the Jewish leaders and the people, the truth actually doesn't matter, does it, so long as they get what they want. And to do that, they've convinced themselves that their own lies and distorted realities are in fact truth. They've gone so far with it, actually, they just add lie upon lie upon lie until they're in a right mess that they can't get themselves out of. And they have to fully follow through. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. That brings us on to the truth according to Pilate. Now, switch your mindset. You're no longer a Jewish leader. You're now Pontius Pilate. That's quite a difficult one, isn't it, (laughs) to to get yourself in the mindset of. You're a a governor of a Roman province. Gosh, I don't even know where you begin with thinking about that. Anyway, you are, and it's the small hours of the morning in Jerusalem. And Pilate's shaken awake by his staff. And he is the governor of the Roman province of Palestine. His job... As the, as the governor, is to see to the efficient administration of the province to protect its borders, to wage war if necessary, so that Rome can maximize its profits and its glory. That's what you're there for, Pilate. And normally, he'd be based in Caesarea up the coast. That's his normal place, uh, base of operations. Um, however, this week, he happens to be in Jerusalem. He's positioned himself there because it's Passover week. And Jews from all over the world are coming to the city. They're converging on the city for the Passover, to go to the temple, to offer their sacrifices. Now, in the Roman mind, in Pilate's mind, this is the week that the Jews celebrate what? They celebrate their rescue from under the yoke of Egyptian oppression. They're all gathered in one place. It's a tinderbox. It's a very fertile breeding ground for anti-Roman sentiment. And so... He wants to be on hand, at the scene, at ground zero, to deal with any issues that arise before they can spiral out of control, whatever they may be. And in the early hours of this morning, such a situation arises. His staff tell him that there are a crowd of agitated Jewish leaders and people gathered outside the palace. Now, annoyingly, because of some obscure law, they are unwilling to come into the palace, so he has to get dressed and go out to them. Very frustrating uh, set, of, set of events. But it's best to see what's going on, just to, just to make sure. Let's nip this in the bud. 
And they've brought a man whom they wish to hand over for trial under Roman law, which again brings us back to verse 29. What charges are you bringing against this man? Well, he's a criminal. <laughs> that's all. That's all he gets. He's a criminal. So we've handed him over to you. It's, it's a rather evasive answer, isn't it? And most likely because they know Pilate just won't care about Jesus' Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, demon-powered, deceitful ways. He just won't care. He's a Roman. This is a Jewish matter. And they're right. He doesn't. Their evasive approach doesn't, doesn't work out for them either. Pilate just says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now, we know why they don't want to do that. So they persist. He doesn't want to get involved in internal religious disputes. Why have you troubled me with this, effectively, is what Pilate says. But the reply that comes back piques Pilate's interest. The next sentence from them gets his attention. But we have no right to execute anyone. Whoa, okay, execution. I didn't realize we were talking about execution. Who's talking about execution and why? What has this man done that deserves execution? Because in the Roman Empire, execution was reserved for serious crimes, very serious crimes. Crucifixion, particularly, was saved for usually revolts against the empire. And that is Pilate's chief concern. That's what suddenly piques his interest here. Now, John doesn't tell us exactly what the conversation between Pilate and the people uh, was and how that precisely unfolds, but you can guess from the conversation that Pilate now has with Jesus in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He's got that from somewhere. Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus said? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate is, is now concerned. The, the rumblings are, are there. He's now concerned that Jesus may have some kind of claim to the throne of Israel. That he might be someone who's trying to unite the, the Jews. And, and, and this week would be the perfect time to do it. And that would be very bad news for the Romans. And it would be even worse news for, for the Jewish people. He's concerned because Jesus seems to be claiming to be the Messiah, which means the promised deliverer. <laughs> so, yes, Jesus is a king, just not in the way that Pilate or anyone else is thinking. And Jesus' response to Pilate was brilliant, wasn't it? Is that your own idea? Is that your own idea? Or did someone put it in your head? What do you say about me, Pilate? What do you say about me? It's me and you talking now. There's nobody else. It's just me and you. Jesus is basically saying to Pilate to make his own assessment and come to his own decisions on his own terms about Jesus. This is an opportunity for Pilate. It's amazing, isn't it? It's an opportunity for Pilate, the Roman governor. He was a horrible man, Pilate. If you read the history about him, he was a horrendous, horrendous guy. Really, really nasty guy. But here's an opportunity for him. And he squanders it. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, that I would trouble myself with such things. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? 
You've done something for them to hand you over to me. What is it? In other words, it's nothing to do with me. Just tell me what you've done to get your own people so worked up. To which Jesus again replies brilliantly. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Yes, I am a king, Pilate, but not one you need to worry about. At least not one uh, for the reasons that you're thinking. I'm not one that is a threat to the Roman Empire in the way that you're thinking of it. But actually, I am a king that you need to fear, Pilate. I am a king that every individual person needs to fear, in a sense, if you reject me. Because to reject him is to reject salvation. And Pilate refuses to see this. He simply wants to find out whether or not Jesus poses a threat. That's all that's on his mind. That's his only agenda. He's just working through the matters of the day and trying to discharge his duties as governor of the province. Again, I I put it to you. If you were in Pilate's position, I reckon you probably would have done the same thing. I reckon you probably would. You are a king then, said Pilate, to Jesus' response. You are a king. I knew it. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You say I'm a king, Pilate, but the reason I came is to tell the truth. If you're on the side of truth, Pilate, you'll listen to me. But you're not, so you won't. Now, effectively, Jesus has done all of his talking. By this point, this is Jesus done talking. Those who heard and believed are on the side of truth. Those who didn't are not. What do you believe, Pilate? What do you believe? Are you on the side of truth? What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And with those words, he shuts down any further conversation with the one who is full of truth. He shuts down the conversation with the truth. It's incredible. He doesn't care. Who can say for sure what the truth is? You say one thing, the Jewish leaders say another. Who can say for sure? Why does the truth even matter? For Pilate, it's more of a philosophical question. Who cares what the truth actually is? The more pressing question is, what do I do with you? How do I stop what's about to happen from happening? I mean, I can't find anything wrong with you, so that's a problem. (laughs) Frankly, it would be easier if there was something wrong because I could just have done with the whole situation, but I can't. But to accept you, to accept you, Jesus, now that would make my life very hard. And that I'm not willing to do. So, what does he do? He consults the world. He consults the people. I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. What shall I do with him? What shall I do with him? But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Effectively, he takes, I mean, it's actually, in many ways, if you think about it just in purely worldly terms, from Pilate's point of view, it's a masterstroke. 
just take everything else out of the picture, it's an absolute masterstroke because he takes the easy way out. The angry crowd get what they want, the legal basis to kill Jesus. And Pilate gets to look as though he's tried to do the right thing. He's not judging Jesus. He's let the crowd judge Jesus. Let the Jews judge their own, but I can hand down the sentence based on what they tell me to do. Everyone's a winner. We'll have no uprising. Everything will just carry on with the status quo. Everyone will be comfortable. Everyone will be happy. No dramas. Pilate doesn't care at all what the truth is, so long as it doesn't inconvenience him. And in order to silence the truth, he's willing to question whether it is ever really possible to know what truth is. Remember at the beginning when we looked at being in a post-truth world? Well, it looks as though Pilate was in a post-truth world as well. In fact, if you think about it, we've been in a post-truth world since Genesis chapter 3. Nothing's ever changed and nothing ever will. But burying your head in the sand when confronting truth or when confronted with the truth is not the answer. Truth is objective and the object of truth is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the man you meet in the scriptures. He comes to you and explains who he is in no uncertain terms. And to deny that, to deny that, well, that's lunacy. And it brings us on to our final point, which is the truth. Just pure and simply the truth. Now, there's many, there's many ironies as you go through this passage, and I'm sure you probably picked out quite a few of them already. Um, but the first irony you get right at the beginning uh, in, in verse 28 which says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, the, the Jewish leaders' rules and regulations meant that they could not enter a Gentile residence, um, or they would become unclean. If they became unclean, they would have to miss the Passover meal because there were certain things that they had to do to make themselves clean again. They didn't have time to do it. However, they are perfectly happy to deal with Gentiles to procure the death sentence of an innocent man. You tell me what's unclean. Not only that, but they're so desperate to eat the Passover meal whilst handing over the Passover lamb himself. Jesus is the Passover meal. They can't even see it. If they'd been listening to Jesus, they would have heard him say earlier in John, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus isn't saying literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's, that's, that's how ridiculous it gets. They say, what? You're mad. What, actually eat you? What, we zombies or vampires or something? No. Don't be so literal. Don't be so stupid. How can you not understand what I'm saying? I am the bread from heaven. I am the manna that God sent down for you to, to, to live on, to know true life. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed in Egypt so that you could live by painting the blood over your doorposts, that's me. You can't give me over and eat the Passover meal. 
the second irony. In verse 31, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now, we have no right to execute anyone. This isn't technically true, is it? We, we know that they executed people. Remember what happened to Stephen. They just dragged Stephen out and stoned him to death. Whether it was lawful or not is another matter, but they were certainly happy to do it. And they were doing it for much the same reasons as, as, as the things that Jesus has said. So they could have stoned him to death. The reason isn't that they're worried about uh, having the right to do it. They're worried about the backlash from people that follow Jesus. Because there are many that do follow Jesus. John's Gospel is really clear on that. But if they had done that, if they had simply dragged Jesus out of the city and stoned him to death, guess what? Jesus would be a liar. It's amazing, isn't it? If they had done that, it would have made Jesus a liar. They actually would have won. They would have got what they wanted. Because Jesus said in verse 14, uh, earlier in, in another chapter in John, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He said that as he was speaking about the kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up. What does lifted up mean? Lifted up. On a cross, you start on your back on the ground with your arms spread wide and they lift you up for all to see. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness and all who were bitten had to look at it and be saved, so people who are bitten by sin have to look at Christ lifted up on the cross and be saved. Now, when you're stoning someone, you don't lift them up. Actually, you bury them up to their waist in the ground and launch rocks at them until they're dead. They're actually proving the truth of Jesus' words themselves as they're trying to disprove him. Get that through your head. (laughs) You just can't make it up, can you? You actually couldn't make it up. The third irony. Verse 39 but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And so an innocent man dies so a rebel can go free. Pilate executes someone who was no threat to him and releases a threat. As, we, as we've been reading in 1 Timothy, Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus died, uh, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Even sinners like Barabbas. By setting Barabbas free, they are validating Jesus' entire mission. <laughs> that he would drink the judgment meant for rebels like us. And then there's the final irony, and that's the truth about us. Earlier in John, Jesus had been speaking to the people and the Jewish leaders, and he said this, Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. That's the Jewish leaders. 
But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. That's Jesus. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? The people and the leaders who were so keen to see the rules followed at all costs, Sabbath breaker, did not manage to keep the rules themselves. They couldn't do it. And we see that in this passage as they bend all of the rules out of shape to push through the murder of a man who has just basically become an uncomfortable inconvenience to them. He told them things like, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You were doing the works of your own father. Guess who that is? You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? What did Abraham do? He trusted God. They're nothing like Abraham. Because if they were, they would trust him. These are truths that they cannot bear to hear. The truth is, if you do not listen to Jesus, you are no child of God. You are a child of the devil. Jesus says it plain and clear. And you will do his bidding, which is lies and murder, which is exactly what they do. They lie so they can have him murdered. And people today have not changed. We are, we are foolish to think that things are any different in today's world, that this would have played out any differently, and even in our own hearts. When Jesus gets too radical for you, too uncomfortable, too exclusive, what are we tempted to do? Shut him up. Effectively murder him, silence him, shut him down. Don't want to hear that. Now, I really want you all to hear this. I really, really do. Because don't think for a second that that ability does not reside within you. You are by nature an enemy of Christ. We're told that in the scriptures. Even in my short time as an elder over the last couple of years, we have watched so many people effectively murder Christ because they do not like what they hear anymore. Most of it was fine. Much of it was good. But then something comes up that's at odds. Can't live with that. That doesn't agree with the life I want to live. And they walk away. It's, it's depressing. When you murder Christ, you're effectively, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but you're basically what you're, just, you're doing, you're saying, I don't need any help. I don't need your help. I don't need saving. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not listening to your version of the truth. I've got my own thanks. Doing just fine. And this is what Jesus has been saying all along. It's not just my version of the truth. I didn't make this up. He's just telling people what his father told him. He says it over and over and over again. He could not be clearer about that point. 
I am just doing my Father's works. I do not speak on my own. I say what the Father told me to say. I've been told this by the Father. I come from the Father. Again and again and again, God decides what's true. And his mouthpiece to tell the world is Jesus. If you don't listen to him, then your argument's with God. And I can tell you there's only one outcome there. It's depressing to watch people do that. It really is. But I don't want to end on that note. Because Jesus had so much more to say that was positive. So let's end on this. In chapter 8 and verse 31 of John, Jesus says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The truth that sets you free is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. That's what Paul says. And he's not saying he's worse than any of you. He just knows himself better than he knows any of you. He knows his sin more deeply. I know my sin better than I know any of your sin. I am the worst sinner in this room to me. I'm the worst sinner in the world to me. Finn, you're the worst sinner in the world to you, I'm sure. We know ourselves we don't know ourselves as well as we ought to. There's depths of sin within us that, that are horrifying to discover. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. He allowed himself to go through this process. He allowed people to lie about him. He allowed them to hand him over. He allowed them to nail him to a cross. He allowed them to kill him so that we can walk free, just like Barabbas walked free from certain death. That's the truth. It's not a version of the truth. It's not subjective truth. It's objective. It runs throughout the whole of this book, cover to cover. So what is your version of the truth? I hope you don't have one. I hope you can just hang everything on that truth. Let me pray. Father, we, um, we do thank you that you speak to us so very clearly. You leave no room for doubt. Um, you, you give us evidence, tons and tons and tons of evidence. Everything you say is backed up and backed up and backed up. There are prophecies which foretell the future and then it happens. You send your son and he fulfills every prophecy that was made about him. It's spectacular. And there's nothing else like it anywhere in the world. Nothing that even holds a candle to it. And so we pray that, that we would cling to this truth. Whatever Jesus says, however hard it may be to hear, that we would we would work with it. We would battle through anything that we're struggling with, clinging on to your words of truth, not listening to the lies that the world has to tell us, but we'd come to you with it. We would turn to you in prayer. We would turn to your word for guidance. We would look to other Christian brothers and sisters for help. Please help us to be singularly minded about what your truth is and help us to be confident in that as well. 
as we go and, and speak this truth out into a world that so desperately, desperately needs it. Father, we do uh, pray that you would help us with this and that your name would be glorified uh, as a result. Amen.